0: This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 115, all of it. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, and noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into the silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So we're in the middle of our summer series, traveling through the Psalms, and I'm glad to get to be back to open the word with you today. This Psalm 115 that's focused on the glory of God, contrasted with these strange idols we're gonna talk about today. Would have been just an ordinary day for Herod Agrippa, who was king over Judea during the period after Jesus' lifetime from that royal family that ruled. In Judea, he's the man, Herod Agrippa, who killed the Apostle James. And in Acts chapter 12, had the Apostle Peter imprisoned with that same purpose, stories told in Acts 12. Herod Agrippa, he was a great persecutor of the church. This day, however, in his life, was a day of political fanfare, you might say, an accolade, as he put on a robe that was decked with with silver and sat on his throne and delivered this powerful speech to the crowds. He glistened, history records, its sun radiated and sparkled off of his silver robe robe, and the crowds were in front of him eating up every word he said and he finished this speech on that day was a speech of making peace. And the crowd began to shout and chant. This is the voice of a God, not a man. Acts 12 records, they shouted and shouted, you shall be known as a God, Herod, not a man. What was he thinking at that moment? Maybe he was thinking this is what life is all about. They get it. All my power, all my influence, all my speaking skills have brought me to this day the voice of a God. I'm not a man. That moment, Acts 12, 23, records that God did not hold back. Scripture says in Acts, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. You know, Acts chapter 12 is not the only place that's recorded. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes the same story. Pretty similar details. What did he do wrong? Why such quick, swift judgment from God? doesn't seem that he did anything wrong necessarily in his speech that day. Didn't enact any unjust laws that we know of in history on that day. What did he do wrong? Receive glory that was only due to God. It, it was in what he didn't do. Give God the glory, give God the credit, the praise, the honor, the worth that He deserves," is what He didn't do. Now you and I wouldn't probably be so bold as to seek out this kind of praise, but we all have Herod-like temptations, don't we, to seek our own glory, to trust in ourselves rather than in God. Or question in our life, as verse two does, we'll see in a moment in our psalm today, "Where are you, God? Where is God? Or look to other things or people, idols we might call them, for protection and blessing and deliverance. We have those kind of temptations. You do. I do. God takes his glory seriously, which is the theme of our psalm today, because he is the best thing there is. And by doing so, it's for your joy and your good that he does do that. His glory is attached to your good. To acknowledge him as great is to enjoy him and to enjoy what we were made for, him, him alone. Well, today Psalm 115 is going to help us remember what Herod forgot. Life is not about God making me happy, but whole and holy and eternally joyful In him. The things and people of this world, they don't exist just to serve my purposes and agenda. Psalm 115 is a communal prayer for confidence in the Lord. And it's going to be our prayer today for confidence, Bethany Church, in the Lord. The psalmist reminds God's people to abandon their idols. You might call them functional gods, the things that can operate in our life like a God function that way, even though not God, and to trust in the Lord for true protection, blessing, and deliverance. So if you got it, grab your outline. Hopefully you've got your text open to Psalm 115. I'm going to ask you to look down multiple times today as we unpack this psalm. We're going to be looking into four sections we're going to break it down into, four encouraging reminders we're calling them today as we look to be encouraged ourselves as a community of believers. Our first one is this. Here's our first encouraging reminder. In good times of life, however you might define those, and in bad times, however you might define those in your life, there is still in all of those moments one God to be praised. However, whatever is going on, if you define it as a good season, a bad season, a, a fruitful season, a difficult season... There's one God to be praised. There's a communal voice in these first couple verses, the voice of a community, not just, not just the psalmist here, but the entire community in these first two verses, a communal cry. You can hear it for deliverance, for rescue from something in verses 1 and 2. Something seems to be happening in the lives of the community of God's people. Maybe this was written around the time of the exile when they were captured and carried away. We're not quite sure. It's possible. It's possible. Maybe that was the setting for this psalm. That would have been a really bad time in God's people's lives, wouldn't it? Carried away from their home, captive, taken away to Babylon. Something's happening. And so they say in verse 1 together, all of them, Not to us, O Lord, us, us, all of us. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give that glory. Not to us. God, act for the sake of your name in this moment. Act for the sake of who you, you are. Meet our needs for the sake of, of your name, God. I was reading a devotional this week, and it listed three questions. Just simple three questions that at one time or another in everybody's life, we're all haunted by. Three questions that point to the deep human desires and needs that we, we, we all have, that you have even right now. You can almost sum up the human condition of worry, fear, and emptiness in these three questions. Here they are. Three questions we all ask at various times in life. Will I be loved? Will I be loved at the end of the day, or tomorrow, or a year from now, 10 years from now? Will people tolerate me once they really get to know me? Will I be accepted, is what I'm saying. Will people want to be around me once they see the true me. Or I need to hide all the time. Put on a mask. The third one, will I have what I need to live? Practical day-to-day. doesn't matter who you are. At one time or another, you have feared rejection. Will I be loved? Judgment. Will people put up with me? And poverty. Will I have enough? And many times it's, the un- it's in the uncertain answers to these questions when we're not sure or when we are feeling a lacking love, approval, or stuff that we cry out for deliverance as God's people are in verse 1. God, not to us, but, but to your name. Deliver me. Save me. Save us. Come. I don't know the answer to this question. Will I? I don't know. But as you notice, God's people are not crying out to him just for the sake of the stuff. Because in their current state of desperation, what's happening? Others are taunting them. Others are taunting them. Maybe it was their captives in the exile. Others were taunting them and so taunting God's glory. God's name and his reputation were at stake as his people were languishing. Where's your God now? where is he? Look at your life. Where's he at? He doesn't love you. Look at the state of your life. Where's your Christ? Where's your Savior? He's been gone 2,000 years. Where is he? Where's he at? Where's your God? If you look back in history at the countless stories of communist oppression in Europe, places like Poland and other places, this is the great taunt they would use. They'd put them in jail and they'd sometimes put mock crucifixes in front of them and they would say, where's your God? Where is he now? Where's he at? Something's going on similar to God's people here and maybe you have felt like that in life. You've trusted in God. But these questions you don't know the answer to and you felt that in your own heart or others looking at you. Really, you trust that God, that Savior? So they cry out in humility is what they do. These first couple of verses, they cry out in humility, God, your glory is tied to the state of your people, the people you've made promises to, a covenant with. So, you're for your namesake, show yourself to be powerful, because we're languishing here. The problem is that in this past year, if I'm honest with myself or you with yourself, hasn't your voice joined the nations in ambivalent doubt? where are you, God? Where are you? Where yet? Are you still active in my life? And Usually that happens when we're trusting in the good things God gives us, making them into idols, which we'll talk about in a minute, the voiceless, powerless idols. More than trusting, That even if our three questions don't seem to be getting answered, God's still good and he's doing what pleases him in any moment of our life. Which is ultimately, for my good and for your good. Even when one of those three is, I'm not sure about that one. So how do we go about asking God for the good things? Because we know as verse 1 says... The people even remind God after they say, here's our purpose to the glory of your name. They remind him, you're steadfast, you're loving, you're faithful. We know you want good things for us. You're a loving God, a good father. Here's a quote that helps us, I think. God gives us good things, not as ends in themselves, but so that we'll see his generosity and be moved to worship and serve him. It's not a sin to desire good things from our Lord, as they are here in the psalm. The problem comes when we desire those good things more than we desire our Creator. Let us not turn the things we have into idols, but let us always remember God and His goodness using our enjoyment of His gifts as an occasion to thank and praise Him. That's what they're saying here. To your glory, Lord, deliver us. The good things, in other words, are to point us to the good giver in life. And so cause us to glorify his name, not as an end in and of themselves, but as daily reminders, as daily touches, as daily points of care that reveal to us the character of who our God is. That's why. So when your present adversity is causing you to doubt God's goodness, or question his love, or feel like you're joining the nations, where is God? Or questioning his faithfulness. There's two things this psalm gives us to help us through that. Here's the first one. He is a sovereign God. They respond really clearly in verse 3 to this taunt. Where is your God, as the nations say? Remind yourself, as the psalmist does here, he's in control of all things, even if it looks like life is careening out of control. Find confidence in that. And that's what they do. This is what verse 3 asserts. Look down at it. It's their response to where is your God. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. Even if it looks like right now he's missing an action, he's not. Isn't it just possible as you think about your life now? And those three questions. Isn't it just possible that in those moments where you know you're truly stepping out in faith, truly stepping out in faith, having to really just trust God and his word. Nothing by sight seems to line up with what you know to be true about God. That in those moments you're shining for him more brilliantly than you ever have. It's possible. So find confidence, as the psalm Psalm does here and the Israelites do, because you know my God is in control. My God's in control. He sits over heaven and earth. He's too big to be tied down to earth. He sits above it and rules over it even. That's who my God is. That's who your God is. Where's my God? He's ruling and reigning at all times over all things, and he always can do what he pleases and he can make it happen. That's who my God is. Find confidence. He's not surprised by your job loss. He's not surprised by your loss of health. He's not surprised by our current political upheaval, as if he's caught off guard. He's not surprised even by your lonely heart right now. He knows it. He's in control even in those moments. So take it to him as the psalmist does. Take it to him in confidence when doubt comes. Where are you, God? Lord, I know it doesn't feel like it, but I know you're in control. Let my heart experience that too. Cry out as they are here. Not to us, but to your name, O God. And it's in your utter dependence. Do you know something? It's in your utter dependence that he's most glorified. And that's actually for your good as we said at the top, for your joy, even. Tattoo this verse on your heart. You heard me say heart, right? Tattoo this verse on your heart. I don't know anybody's showing up next week. Hey, look, I got it. You can if you want, but... Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I'm God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying... My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. You know what Isaiah is saying and the rest of the Bible all over the place is saying, the Gospels included, he's declared, he's ordained, he's predestined the end from the beginning over your life. All things he will work. His counsel, his will, his purpose over you. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot, regardless of the circumstances. Find confidence in that. Spurgeon said this. He took it down to the the molecule, the microscopic. I believe every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the fall of the dry leaves from a poplars is fully ordained the tumbling of an avalanche. Does Scripture teach this? We don't have time to unpack the whole thing today. We could do 100 verses right now and go through every area of life from the drops of rain that Scripture says that God is in control. He's in control. So yes, it does. My God sits in the heaven, the psalmist says, and does all that he pleases. His will can't be thwarted. Satan himself, you know who he's going to end up as? A footnote in history. A footnote. Tell him that. He's going to be a footnote. It's possible that if we've got a God who's powerful enough, He's sovereign, we're saying, He's powerful enough to be able to stop every bad thing from ever happening to you. Isn't He also simultaneously, we also then have to have a God who's wise enough, benevolent, loving, and has un- maybe unseen reasons that you don't always know for letting those things happen to us? We have to. If he's powerful enough to make everything, to control everything, make everything stop, he's also si- simultaneously got to be a God that may have reasons that we just can't see yet. That someday we will. He has to be if he's all-powerful. He's free to act. He's free to delay. Our God is sovereign, and therein lies our comfort, the comfort of God's people, whatever was taking place in this psalm to them. Here's a second thing to remind yourself of. Everything else you place your ultimate hope in besides God is an impotent idol. If It's your ultimate hope. Everything else if you place your ultimate. If I place my ultimate hope in it, it's an impotent idol, the psalm goes on to say. It's humorous, it's sarcastic description of the idols in verses 4 through 8. The idols that these nations that just said, where is your God? The idols these nations worship, they're described as statues Made with eyes, ears, noses, feet, mouths, as Tony read, and hands. But they're impotent. They can't do anything. There's a sharp contrast here to verse 2, isn't there? These idols, or verse 3. They can't do anything. They can't speak like our God does. Not a sound comes from their mouth, it says even twice in their throat. They look pretty, don't they? Shiny, silver, and gold they're described as. They look beautiful, but an ant of the earth has more power than any of these idols. An ant. Any of these idols. Now, when we hear the word idol, most people think this—think of images like this, that's described here, like a statue, a statue somebody bows down to, a shrine somewhere in a temple maybe you've seen pictures of. And we say, of course they're impotent and, and absurd. And don't have power in a man-made statue. But are we so far from that? Here's a quote from Tim Keller. Yet while traditional idol worship still occurs in many places, think of a statue, the world, internal idol worship with the heart is universal. Ezekiel 14.3, God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Like us, The elders must have responded to this charge. Idols? What idols? I don't see any statues. We don't have any statues. We know God is spirit, right? They might have said. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Functional gods. What gets you out of bed in the morning. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us that's significant, the answer to those three questions. security, safety and fulfillment. if we get them, if we attain them. And then if we attain them, what then we have to do also after that, hold on to it. We've got to get it. In other words, if God's not the center of your heart, something else will be. Something else will be. When we look to other things than God to answer, ultimately answer our three questions, Am I truly loved? Am I accepted? Am I, am I taken care of? When we look to them ultimately now, there are good things. When they become your everything, it's an idol. It becomes an idol, an idol of the heart, as Ezekiel said. Here's some questions to help you. How do you find the, own, the idols of your own heart then? How do you do this? How do you practically now do this? I put a, a, a print out today with about 50 of these questions out there if you want to grab one today, but here's just a few of them. You ask yourself these questions, and then you try to find the answers. What really captures my imagination? when I'm just kind of like, what I really imagine, what could be, what could be? And maybe it's something you come a little obsessed about or imagine too much. Here's another one. What do I daydream about? When my mind is just sort of free and I have a down moment, whenever that is for some of us, right? A time to just daydream. What does it easily drift to? What do you fear most? Maybe it's something you fear losing. Maybe that is the answer to what your idol might be. What makes you uncontrollably angry, anxious, despondent? Sometimes it's real easy for me. I get home from work and I just want some quiet time myself. Kids don't understand that, do they? And I realize really quickly, my idol in that moment is my own comfort, relaxation, and ease of life. That's what I want. That's my idol in that moment. That's why I got so angry at them. That's the answer to the question. What makes me easily angered, right? Do you ask yourself that, or anxious is a good one. Or despondent. I just don't even want to get out of bed in the morning if I don't have this thing. Right? That's how we find them. Here's the fifth one. What do you think you need to make life worth living? If you thought, I just lost this, I wouldn't want to go on. And most of the time, they're all really good things that will be answers to that question. But they've gotten out of order in our life. Disordered loves, as Augustine said. They're out of place. And they've risen to too high of an importance. So whatever ends up happening. We end up enjoying them less, actually, don't you? Because it's this thing that you're so anxious about, you never actually even enjoy it. Those are some questions. Any material thing of this world, any temporal thing of this life, this world, has no power to ultimately deliver you. And the psalmist said, he said these idols, they're like blind, deaf, mute, dumb. They cannot do anything for you. No power. And if it becomes your idol, you become just like it. Look at verse 8. Look down at your text with me. Fighting a cough today. you got to bear with me. Verse 8 says, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them lifeless idols, despondent. It'll pass away, and if it becomes your ultimate thing, so you will too. Lifeless. It'll give you nothing. You'll end up just like it. You've heard the phrase, you are what you eat, and I've said this phrase before. It's actually this, you are what you love. You are what you love. And he says here, Those who trust in them will become like them. So if you find out what your idol is, what do you do? If it's something good, it doesn't mean you have to get rid of it necessarily. Enjoy it for the good thing it is, but find its proper place of loves in your life. And repent and come to the Lord. Lord, I've made this an idol. Help me appreciate it for what it really is in its proper place. Our first encouraging one, we're going to go through our next three pretty quick. Here's our second one. Find confidence in God's ability to save. The first one is we find we found, excuse me, confidence in the good times and the bad. There's one God to be praised. The second one is find confidence in God's ability to be, save, find ultimate confidence in this. As a father, one of the things I often say to my kids, because a lot of times they don't, is, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Your child standing on the side of the pool, or your grandchild and you're there in the pool, right? You remember that, looking up at them? And you see them, they're standing there with those weak, wobbly knees, aren't they? And they're kind of so desperately wanting to make that jump. You can see the fear mixed with determination, mixed with adrenaline, mixed with the excitement. And they, they're almost leaning, they're tottering with their heavy head over their feet, aren't they, like this, right? It's in these moments... It's in these moments when you say, I, "Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Okay. I will catch you. they lock eyes with you, don't they? And they leap. Sometimes you get clobbered, don't you? But they leap. They do it. and you catch them. The psalmist and God is saying here, "Do you trust me?" Do you trust me?" Yes. OK. You know I will catch you. You know I will catch you. Three times in verses 9 through 11, the psalmist writes, Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Do you trust me? Why? Because your idols will always fail you. The idols just mentioned will always ultimately fail you. He says, I sit in heaven and I do as I please. Trust me. I'm your help and shield, he's described in these verses. I'm your protection. I'm your answer to those three questions. It's me. It's always been me. Trust in the Lord, he says. How different the religion of the idol worshiper is to the true follower of God. You see the contrast here? The idol worshiper, he crafts it, he makes it, he cultivates it, he feeds it, he holds on to it in his heart, gives up everything for it, becomes like it in the end. He makes the image to bring himself to God, herself to God contrast, our God comes to us. Our God speaks to us, and He expects nothing but our trust in Him. That's all He expects. We're saved by faith alone, by trusting in Him. We can't actually even bring Him anything, really, but our worship praise, our life to give Him glory. He's got everything. It's all His. Worship Him alone, as the psalmist is saying. Give His name glory alone. But what is that? This glory. It's kind of a hard concept to define. It's at the top of the psalm. It's not our name, but it's Yours. We sing about God's glory. It's hard concept to define. The word glory really means it means weight. It means something weightful. It's a weight. Okay. Now look at these two rocks I've got here. Got two here. Now. If I was to take this small one and throw it out into the Willamette or a pond or a lake somewhere, how much impact would that have? A little splash. You would see a few, few ripples maybe, not much. It would, it would hit, it'd disappear within 10 seconds. You may not even know it was thrown. Now, you can see it's got a little more heft to it, doesn't it? It's got a little more weight, doesn't it? If I took this thing now and shot put it, not in the front row, you guys are good, but into a, into a river or lake somewhere, it would be a much bigger splash, wouldn't it? It's got weight to it. Now, think about a giant boulder, or when you've seen one of those avalanches of of, of ice fall off the ice wall up in the north, Alaska or Antarctica. I mean, waves come from that. We give God glory when he's got a weighty impact in your life. When he, He's like a, a heavy weight, big, impactful. It was like that, whatever, that two-ton pumpkin they dropped out of Bowman's Farm. You ever seen him do that? Boom! And the, the, the kid baby pool explodes and the water goes everywhere. Here's another quote that helps us kind of understand this. To glorify God, Kevin DeYoung said, is to magnify the greatness of his character, not as a microscope magnifies by making small objects look large, but as a telescope magnifies by giving us a glimpse that are things that are unimaginably big. That's God. To glorify God is to honor his worth. Just as I honor my wife by taking her out on an anniversary date when I could be watching the Chicago Bears, none of you, demonstrating that she's more valuable and desirable than football. You see, you glorify someone or something when you give it weight in your life. Our wives included. Our kids. So, is God like a little pebble in your life? An afterthought, maybe a last minute decision. Can we make it to church today? Or maybe the last place you go when you face a crisis or a moral decision? Is he like a little pebble? Or does he exercise a big weight in your life? Gigantic, mountainous influence. The more weight he has in your life, what happens? the more things get put in their proper place. Those idols we talked about, the bigger the weight he has, we realize those other secondary, functional saviors, whatever you want to call them, are great, important, and beautiful, and wonderful, and good, but they never compare to the giant boulder of God's glory. They never will, never can, they never were meant to. And if you try to make them, you'll smother them and destroy them. The more weight he has in your life, the more they get put in proper, ordered, properly ordered loves. So trust his glory, his goodness, his sovereignty, his power. He's the only one who is our help and shield. And don't forget him because he surely hasn't forgotten you. Here's our third encouraging reminder God does not forget his children and blesses all who fear him. He doesn't forget us. Even when you're saying, as they did in verse 2, where is your God? Or you feel like he has abandoned you, remember this, He has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten you. We're in verse around 12 there. You know what I love about this section in verse 12 through 15? Lord's remembered us, He'll bless us, He'll bless the house of Israel. He'll bless the house of Aaron. He'll bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase you and your children. I love this section because it gives us confidence that God, he blesses us through our relationship with him by grace alone, through faith alone. Not on who we are, not based on who you are, but on who he is. Look at these verses that I just read. Every group he'll bless, verse 12 says, from the house of Israel to the house of Aaron the priest and all the rest who fear God, whether they're part of Israel, the nation, or a Gentile that came in and feared, he'll bless every group. How about verse 13? Every type of person, both great and small. You don't have to amount to anything to have God's blessing on your life. Isn't that encouraging? It's not just the mighty. It's not just the strong. It's not just the popular. It's the small too, the insignificant. It's each and every one of us and everybody in between can have God's blessing And every generation, verse 14, you and your children. That's what I love about this section. Every type of group, every person great and small, and on and on through generations, God is going to bless those who fear him. So even though we will have hard times, those bad times, even though affliction will come, in Christ's covenant with us, the new covenant, his death and resurrection for you, His commitment to the church means we will never be forgotten. You will never go unnoticed in his eyes, no matter how insignificant you might feel today. He'll never forget you. And those who fear him rightly with a a filial, that's like a family, a good, healthy, weighty, relational, godly, good, fatherly fear that gives him weight and glory, will receive blessing. It's promised every group from the greatest to the least for all generations and we know he can give us blessings why look at verse 15 may you be blessed by the lord who made heaven and earth the heavens and earth are his making they are at his disposal because they are hid his he's the maker of all things and the giver of all life and so he can bless leads us to our final fourth encouraging reminder The living praise Him now and forever. Forever and ever and ever. The living. The living praise Him now forever and ever. There's a real sense in these final verses of the psalm of the present and future. Look down at them now. On the one hand, we can praise God now because... Verse 16 says, he's given us the earth. He's given us the earth, verse 16 says, and now, and how we live in it and on it and with each other and with the stuff of the earth, if it's to God's glory, it gives him praise. So now, you can praise him now. But we will also praise him forever. Listen to verse 18. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore praise the Lord. Forever. But how can I? When I can't stop thinking about those three questions you brought up at the beginning, will I be loved? Will I be accepted? Will I be what I have, what I need to live? When these things haunt me so much, how can I, I mean, I can't even think about today when I'm not sure what's going to happen. When there's, you put three, there's 30 questions I have that I don't know the answer to. And it's causing me to think, where is God in this? Do you know each of these fundamental fears is addressed? And answered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all your fears. These questions, these dilemmas are solved in the face of the one who displays God's glory, Jesus. All of these. Will I be loved? The gospel is the greatest love story ever told. It's a story of a God who loved the unlovable by sending Jesus to die for us and is so committed to making us into perfectly lovable beings. Will you be loved? Look at Jesus. Look at the ultimate love story. And that loving sacrifice brings us into a loving eternal family that's starting now, but it's going to go on forever. Praise Him forever. You are loved, and you always will be. Will I be tolerated? That's a hard one. When they know the real me, when I let out the secrets, when I show my weakness, when I put my guard down, will I be tolerated? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest forgiveness story ever. It's the story of the God who, while we were enemies, died for us. He knows you. There's no mask with Jesus. He knows everything about you. Yet he died for his enemies to forgive us. It's the story of the innocent sufferer, suffering in the place of the guilty. God really knows you, and he doesn't just tolerate you in the gospel. He forgives you in the gospel. That's what we have. That's what you have. Will you be tolerated? You're forgiven. Will I have what I need to live? The gospel is the greatest story of provision ever told. The story of a God who made everything, who owns it, has a vast storehouse of gifts and an unending stream of good things to give to poor creatures like you and me. Makes me think of Paul's words. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, but God has prepared for those who love Him. Will you have what you need? Yeah, you will. So, Bethany Church, trust in the Lord today. He's your help, He's your shield. Place the weight of your life on that. On this, not to us, not to us, Lord, but to your name give glory. And find all your questions answered in the face of Jesus Christ, who's the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, there are lots of questions in our life. There are all kinds of things we fear. And yet the gospel's the greatest answer to all those stories. The reason we love love stories and stories of redemption and stories of rags to riches is because we want those questions answered that way in our life. Whatever movie and show we watch that puts forward those themes, yet the gospel has them all. The story of redemption gives us love, gives us acceptance, gives us future blessing forever. And so let us praise you now today and give you the weight you deserve in our life because of that. Let The gospel transform us in the here and now. Let us know that our security rests not in the things of earth, but in the God who raised from the dead. In Christ's name.